Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. Are you able to speak languages you previously didn't know? Um, that's more thanks to Duolingo. All right, so yeah, I guess you're not possessed, uh, which is good news for all of us. Nice. <laughs> good morning, Jonathan. Good afternoon, Slava and Zubair. We got another guest episode here on SideQuest. It's good to be here. Zubair, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. There's a storm going on here in uh, North Carolina where I'm... Uh talking with you guys from so if you hear some thunder in the background it's not any demonic activity it's just a storm Mm, nice i like it well like we always like to do or well what i like to do like to throw a few questions at our talking heads here so what did you guys learn this week zuber you want to go first yeah sure so um i I write for the national catholic register and uh, october 7th is going to be the feast of our lady of the rosary which was actually, when it was first established, known as Our Lady of Victory, because it's on the anniversary of the uh, Battle of Lepanto, which is uh, it was a big naval engagement between the Ottoman fleet in 1571 and the, uh, the fleet that made the Holy League. And that was from several countries, Spain, Venice, Papal States, Tuscany. The Christian fleet was outnumbered, but uh, the, in, the, in the days leading, weeks and days leading up to the battle... Pope Pius V asked pretty much all the faithful throughout Europe to pray the rosary. And the Christians, actually, the Holy League, had a resounding victory. It's still heavy casualties, but pretty much annihilated the Ottoman fleet, uh, put a stop to the threat that the uh, Ottoman fleet had on the Italian peninsula to go further and further west and eventually capture Rome. Pope Pius V credited the rosary, praying of the rosary, with the victory and established that feast day. And now... To this day, on October 7th, it is the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary. But I got to read all about the details about that. So, that's... I just want to ask one question, and then and then I'll, we'll throw it to Slava to ask him what he learned. But, so, that, so, basically, new feast days can be instituted based on events? I don't... I guess I don't understand. That's yeah. news to me. Yes. Huh. Okay, cool. And, uh, you know, uh, we have new feast days every time there's a new canonized saint. When Mother Teresa was canonized, it's typically the day of her death, because that's the day uh, where they return to the Lord, that's mm-hmm. instituted as their feast day. Now, there's some that are like celebrated much more widely than others, because there's a lot of saints we don't know a whole lot about, but we, they still have the feast day on this day or that day. But yeah, we get new feast days pretty regularly. Okay, cool. Slava, how about you? What did you learn this week? Well, I learned the significance of a battle called Lepanto in October of 1571. <laughs> You're the most interesting man around, huh? Yeah. No, I, it's actually, before we started recording, I quickly looked it up, and what jumped out at me is, um, maybe we can talk offline, Zuber, you can send me some information that you're learning, is the kidnappings that led up to it. What? Kidnappings? Yes, apparently uh, the Ottomans, Muslim naval ships, were attacking coastal villages in Italy, Sicily also, and kidnapping a bunch of uh, a bunch of Italians or the, the you know, the locals. 
Like it huh. got so bad. Like the, the article I'm reading said that it got so bad that hundreds of thousands are thought to have been kidnapped. Hundreds of thousands? Yep. Zuber, you didn't mention this. So like kidnappings had been going on like throughout the history. Oh yeah. But um the event that I learned that really huh. um so when the Holy League was formed in March of fifteen seventy one the island of Cyprus was actually under siege, and um, and the Holy League was actually formed to pretty much help rescue Cyprus. But Cyprus fell in August. The Holy League had been formed a little too late to save the island, and uh, the Venetian commanders they'd made an agreement with the commander, the Ottoman commanders, that they would get safe passage. But the Ottoman commanders didn't live up to their word, and then like they were pretty much just tortured and killed. Uh, one of them was like flayed while he was still alive. And their heads Ooh. were put on pikes. Ooh. So uh, the, the Venetian Venice was like a big part of the Holy League that um, offered more than half the ships that, that comprised the 212 of the Holy League. And uh, they were out for revenge also for that one. Where the battle happened, there wasn't really uh, the Gulf of Patras. There wasn't really any st- strategic interest there. The Holy League offered the fight anyway. Because the main thing is, like, the Ottoman fleet just had to be put to a stop. And so they had a battle in a sea where there was no strategic interest, and they won and annihilated the fleet. Constantinople had fell more than a century earlier in 1453. In, the, in southern Europe, the Ottoman Empire kept on seizing more and more land. And in the Mediterranean, they kept on inching ever westward until they were threatening and harassing kidnapping being very much included that's interesting most of the rowers for the ottoman fleet were christian slaves a lot of them were freed and given arms and like joined in the battle against the ottomans and that helped turn the tide with manpower about twelve thousand were freed that day why don't wars today have more kidnappings we don't have to answer this question i just i'm posing this to the audience because that seems like the geneva connection the the Convention. convention geneva convention yeah is that really? Well, yeah, it kind of governs how you can fight and what is cons- constituted as a crime against humanity. Because I know the Geneva Convention addressed the Holocaust, but I didn't know they had other... I guess they've never looked it up. It also addresses prisoners of war, which, you know, there's a fine line between being a prisoner of war and being kidnapped, I suppose, in some in some battles. Mm, okay. Well, Slava, did you learn anything else? I did. Not as uh, not as interesting as that, but I did learn a new risotto recipe. You guys probably think Slava's like 500 pounds with how much he talks about eating, but he's not, I promise you. He's only 450. I'm not. I'm <laughs> barely inching over 450. So my wife wanted a risotto recipe, and I said, well, go pick one. So she picked a French one, picked one that had a vegetarian component to it. What I'm saying is I didn't learn how to make risotto, but I learned a new risotto recipe. And even though it was a vegetarian, I grilled some lamb and put it on top of it. So that, that's what I learned this week. We won't tell. Jonathan, what about you? I learned this week that I need to also participate in my relationship. That doesn't sound good, uh, but let me explain. Sorry, sorry, girlfriend. I promise I am participating. Zuber, you know, before we started, and I told you that I put my foot in my mouth a lot. This is one of those instances because it's going in the podcast. Well, I had a couple of these podcasts. So I know. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Oh, man. So this unnamed unknown woman that you uh, hung yeah. out a couple of times. Yeah, my other girlfriend. Girlfriend. My, my girlfriend's Colombian, Mexican, and Jewish, and like a drop of Japanese. And so whenever we're like... I know, I know. Shake your head at me. 
Um, she's like an all-you-can-eat buffet. Nope. Nope. <laughs> okay. Is her name Sorry. Discord? She's like a fusion restaurant. <laughs> if we're going to make fun of her with food references, don't call her fat. Call her a fusion recipe. Recipe. A fusion recipe. Man. I'm wow. possessed. I'm so glad this is the Exorcist episode because I'm possessed with a daemon, to quote the Greeks. I have to participate in my relationship. This is, man. All right, I'm just going to get through this. So my girlfriend's changing careers, and she's, like, going into a tech field now uh, from the medical field. And I'm, like, helping organize her schedule and, like, helping her prioritize skills she needs to learn to become the best version of this job. And, and then I just got, like, started thinking about, like, well, what areas in my life do I need to upgrade for my career to get to that next level of next level of, of title and pay and whatever? That's what I've been learning about this week. That gets into another question that I wanted to ask. I know that we're joshing around here on the front end, but, like, what emotionally moved you this week is another question that I like to ask because I saw it on a YouTube video because I'm original like that. I will go first this time and because it, it works well with the thing that I've been thinking about. I work at a small company and I got feedback from my boss for my one-year review that should have happened in February and it's, you know, October when this is airing. The feedback was great. It was it was super good. It puts me in line for a promotion and a pay increase, which is really awesome. I still have these moments of sobriety and like presentness. I don't know how else to say this, where I deeply appreciate the job that I have. I deeply appreciate the work I have the opportunity to do. I'm just very grateful for the opportunity to, to, to press forward in my career and see that my work pays off. I'm sure that we've all had times where we've had jobs where it's like, hey, I know that you're working hard. Doesn't matter. I don't give a shit about you. Work harder. And like, that's how you get treated at your job. So it's nice to be at a place where they appreciate the work. And it does emotionally move me when I think about it and, and sit back and go, yeah, it's a lot of work. But I like that I get to have some autonomy and get to be appreciated and things like that. And it emotionally moves me when I when I take a little bit of time to reflect on that. Slava, why don't, why don't you go, and then we'll have Zubair kick off the last one this time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The thing that moved me, perturbed me slightly, was I got a package from Jonathan. It was a book. <laughs> it was a marketing book by a guy we both follow and, you know, and appreciate his work. And I looked at the name uh, on the package, and it said Slava SideQuest. And I was thinking to myself, <laughs> oh, that's kind of funny. Jonathan's being funny. And then like half an hour later... Like in the cartoon, it came to me. I'm like, no, he's not. That bastard doesn't know to spend my last name. <laughs> and so I sent him a bunch of passive-aggressive. At this point, I'm laughing about it. I'm laughing about it, but still, I'm like, I'm going to send him a bunch of passive-aggressive texts to which he doesn't respond, which I'm like, so either he's too busy or he doesn't understand what I'm talking about. Both. Uh-huh. And so about 20 minutes ago, as of this recording, I mentioned that to him. I'm like, hey, you couldn't have looked at LinkedIn to know how to spell my name or... I don't know. Ask me. So that's what moved me emotionally. I know how to spell Zubair's last name more than I know how to spell whatever you know letters you throw up against a wall for your last name. Yeah. Well, my last name is uh, from Polish Ukrainian descent, so they have a lot of Z's and H's and other consonants. Did so. w- were you guys originally Ukrainian? Then the Poles kidnapped you and forced you to be you know assimilate. Seems seems to be in in line. Now that we're done with that. Whatever that was. Zubair, what emotionally moved you this week? Hope it's not a downer, but I actually did go to a memorial service on Tuesday. So a uh, lady, she's older, but she'd uh, in a church fraternity. I'm a secular Franciscan, so within my fraternity, she had passed away. So brothers and sisters from the fraternity attended the funeral. At some point toward the end, her son 
offered some words about her. He himself was starting to get very emotional and starting to choke up. And I think that caused a lot of us who are uh, listening to him to choke up as well. Because, you know, you you could feel the sincerity. That's the power of an effective speaker. It reminded me that I do have feelings after all. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean to laugh <laughs> because it's a serious it's a serious topic. But that's a real state of being. I think that the reason that we're friends is because we have similar where it's like, yeah, sometimes I don't feel like I have feelings. And then you have a moment like that and you're like, oh, no, I do. They're just, you know, trapped somewhere. I can always watch It's a Wonderful Life or Casablanca. And those will remind me, oh, mm. yeah, I do have feelings after all. Yeah. Man, Casablanca. I, I don't know as much about A Wonderful Life. I haven't seen it in I don't know how long. That's how long. Cool. Well, let's dive in now that we've had a little precursor and you've gotten to know Zubair as a guest. First off, take a moment and hit subscribe on SideQuest, our fellow adventurers, and make sure that you never miss going off on the rails with us on another SideQuest. Slava, what are we talking about? Give us a summary. All right. So for those of you who missed the first two episodes or decided to skip them, The Exorcist is a book about possession. A 12-year-old girl gets possessed, written in 1971 by William Blatty and made into a movie in 1973 with the producer and writer also being William Blatty. And it revolves around three other characters besides the little girl, a mother who's an atheist, and two priests who do their exorcism, one being a true believer and one having a fledgling faith. At the end, the one whose faith is fledgling takes the demon into himself and commits suicide, thus saving the girl. So that is The Exorcist. But I want to learn more about our guest, or at least let the audience learn more about our guest. And so I'm going to punt it over to you, Zubair. Share with the audience how you know us, and maybe a short testimony of your spiritual journey, and your connection to The Exorcist, why you love it, hate it, how many times you read it, all that good kind of good stuff. All right. So I think, John, I think I first met you at The Haven. Is that correct? That's as far back as I can remember. We met in New York at this, like, artist small group. So all three of us lived in New York at the same time for some number of years. But so I'd first met Jonathan at the uh, the Haven, which is a, um, it was a gathering they'd have each Monday for Christian artists. So I currently write for the uh, National Catholic Register. I think they appreciate my outlook because my own journey was from, uh, I grew up Muslim, gave up that in 2007 or 2006. In 2007, I thought I was never going to be religious again, but that didn't last long. And I started um, really paying attention in 2007, what Christ may have to say. And in June 2007, I was baptized. And that's how I met, that's how I started going to the Haven that I met Jonathan. As I learned more and more about Christianity, I began gravitating more and more toward the Catholic outlook. I was confirmed in the Catholic Church in 2012. Now, I'd mentioned earlier that I, uh, I write for the National Catholic Register, and uh, I've been blogging for a good number of years, and Slava might not realize this, but he was actually intrinsical for my career as a blogger. So at some point in 2015, wow. uh, me and some friends... We went to the uh, the Cigar Inn, that cigar lounge on 54th Street, and we, oh, happened, yeah. we happened to bump yeah. into Slava there. And then, uh, Slava, you'd mentioned that you write for the Philos Project. And at that point, I'd only had like one little blog gig for Busted Halo, but nothing regular. Um, and then you'd mentioned to me, it's like, you should submit something. I think they really might like what you have to say. And uh, sure enough, I did submit something. I mentioned that I knew you. 
I'd actually published a good number of articles. Uh, those articles for the Felos Project are no longer around, but I was able to use that portfolio to help get my next gig, which eventually helped set up a meeting because one of my articles is about G.K. Chesterton with the Chesterton Society that I've actually been published in a book. And from that book, I've been able to use that to pretty much introduce myself. I'm not just like some Joe Schmo calling you cold. Slava, you were very, very crucial for that. Just uh, that Hoffman cool. meeting at the uh, Cigar Lounge in 2015. I remember that meeting. Yeah, that's yeah. a fun moment, you guys. That is a fun moment. That, wow, that's really cool. It's, that is a really cool. It's funny. It's, this is, seems to happen a lot, I guess, especially if like uh, in any kind of artistic endeavor where it's like you can try and try and try and try and try and it goes nowhere. But then you can j- all of a sudden be in the right place at the right time and without even thinking about a career or anything like that. And then you just have that meeting, which actually opens up doors. That would be a really interesting podcast topic, not like a single episode, but a series of podcasts of like. Tell us about a time, and we're and we don't have to fully dive into this because we I do want to talk about the Exorcist because I think Zubair has some more interesting things to share with us from his Catholic point of view. But a podcast about moments of fate in your life, right? Like these defining moments. I think fate sounds better because I I'm still a sucker for the Greeks and the Romans. But defining moments would be a a fine name for a podcast as well. Anyway, all these podcast ideas for all you listeners out there. Well, we patented already. You know, stupid jokes for stupid people. Nobody can see that anymore. <laughs> Zuber, you're welcome to join us on that one too, but your sensibilities might be uh, more intelligent than ours are. You want a stupid joke for stupid people? It's really simple. All you have to say is that's what she said at the opportune moment. That's the degradation of our society mm-hmm. and ourselves. That's what she said. You should have said that earlier when I was putting my foot in my mouth about my girlfriend. <laughs> and it's like, well, she might have said that. I, I'll tell you. I'll tell you later. Off, off air. I'll tell you. But anyway. Let's uh let's get back to it. Zuber, earlier this week we were on the text thread together and you were telling us that there are actually some other books about exorcism that were released before The Exorcist ever even came to be. And I'd love to hear about some of those and how you found them and how you discovered this topic. And maybe it was just reading The Exorcist, but like give us a little bit of um, context on, on those books and, and that as well. So, yeah, my... I guess my introduction to the topic would be the film, The Exorcist, as it would be for many, many people, because that film is still, when you adjust it for inflation, uh, far and away, biggest box office hit for R-rated film. Oh, wow. I, that's news to me. I didn't know that. That's Sorry, keep going. But uh, yeah, uh, I've, I've read other books on the topic. If you want to go to the earliest some of the earliest material on the topic, you can actually read the New Testament. One of the books I would like to talk about is G.K. Chesterton's The Everlasting Man. It's not about exorcism, but he mentions how often this idea of like gentle Jesus, gentle and kind Jesus, is often like kind of portrayed. If you actually give the New Testament a reading, a full reading, you realize there's a lot more than just gentle Jesus. Jesus as the exorcist, which, and there's several instances of that throughout the New Testament, um, as well as the apostles acting as exorcists, exist. And it's like, there's much more to it than than when we try to pigeonhole. So, okay, G.K. Chesterton talks about it a little bit in his book, The Everlasting Man, as like, um, we often see Jesus as gentle and meek and kind, and it's popular in culture not to portray him as much more than that. But um, his works, 
as an exorcist, which we see throughout the Gospels, kind of show that there's much more to his character. He had a love the fullest character, you could imagine, but it shows there's much more than what we like to acknowledge when we pigeonhole him. Now, that's talking about the New Testament. That's a 2,000-year-old work. In recent years, there have been more and more books on the topic of exorcism. The Exorcist, even though it was uh, published after Vatican II, and there's like a lot of traditional Catholics today who say everything went wrong with the Catholic Church at Vatican II, the topic of exorcism has actually grown and grown, largely thanks to the book and the film. But there was a book that actually predates The Exorcist by about nine years. It's called, it's The Case Against Satan, written by Ray Russell. He was not a religious person at all. He was actually an editor for Playboy magazine. It's a very similar story. And I wonder if that had actually influenced William Peter Blatty himself, because it was written, it was published in 1962, so nine years before. The Exorcist was. It's a very similar story about a girl who gets possessed. Father tells the priest that she's acting strangely. Sure enough, she starts using a lot of profanity, getting naked at some point in front of a priest, and they realize that they have to actually perform an exorcism. It has a very, very long intro sentence, which I actually just love and got me hooked right away. Do we even have time for me to read this whole sentence? Because it's a long sentence. Yeah. 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 Yeah, read it. Give it a read. Perhaps because God has become a nodding Santa Claus with twinkling eyes and a spun glass beard, or because television spot announcements coo us into worship, or because posters painted by airbrush smoothies and written by slogansmiths assure us that the family that prays together stays together, or because religion has become an unnatural thing of all light and no shadow, a pious bonbon so nice, so sweet, so soporifically bland, that a Karl Marx can call it the opium of the people, not without injustice, or because dread, blood, awe, the sense of primal forces and the element of terror, without which there can be no great love, great art, great faith, have been slowly and systematically subtracted from religion, perhaps for all or some of these reasons, but more likely, for reasons we are not equipped to understand, a priest of the Roman Catholic Church was put on trial one harrowing weekend in the second half of the 20th century. It's quite the sentence. It is. Yeah, yeah it is quite the sentence. Yeah. And uh, that got me hooked right away. And uh, this was a book I just actually couldn't put down. But there's another... Another book I'd like to share, it's, it's not fictional. It's about a very important exorcist priest of recent years, and it's his recollection. It's called An Exorcist Tells His... How recent? So this is Father Gabriel Amorth. He passed away in 2016 or 17. Oh, so modern. Yeah. He was a chief exorcist for the Vatican for uh, a few decades, and he actually brought the awareness of the need for this ministry to the public. He did a lot to to bring that awareness for all of us. William Friedkin actually directed a documentary following him. This was decades after The the Exorcist, but they actually got The Exorcist director to direct yet another about a real-life exorcist. If you ever see the movie, if you've seen the movie The Pope's Exorcist starring Russell Crowe, Russell Crowe actually plays Father Gabriel Amorth, although um, the film was very, very fictional. Honestly, I thought it was a bit cheesy, but his writings on the topic are also very important as well. Why is that? Because he speaks from the experience of a uh, a real life and a very expert <laughs> exorcist and just what he's done to promote the awareness where there's currently uh, an institute, Slava, you, I'm sure you've come across this in Rome that does training for exorcists at the Vatican. That's right. And that was... What? Yep. So I can go No, you, Rome. you'd have to be a priest appointed to go. So a bishop of a particular area... He's the de facto exorcist. 
and he can appoint other priests to be exorcists. And then they would go to this place and get training. So he has to, I'm just going to say this again because I'm going to be the audience and I also don't actually know this. So a bishop in my local area, let's pretend I'm a priest. He says, hey, I want to make sure that there's at least a backup here. So he says, boom, nominate Jonathan. And they just ship me off to Rome and they give me the nine week course on how to perform Catholic exorcisms. And then I come back and now I'm just like certified. Is that, a, is that, did I understand that right? Yes, if you're explaining it to a five-year-old, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fine, 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 fine. Carry on. Yeah, Father Gabriel Morth was crucial for just uh, a lot of the awareness, and the, and the need has actually grown over the last few decades. I've never huh. suspected myself of being demonically possessed yet to um to find out what I need to do to get an exorcist, an exorcism. So uh, I don't know who to go to, like I'd be at a loss. And um, each diocese is supposed to have at least one exorcist. I don't know if it's the case that every single diocese does have a practicing exorcist, but it's supposed to be the case. Yeah. Well, we can figure it out right now. Do you have the propensity for, not the propensity, are you able to speak languages you previously didn't know? Um, that's more thanks to Duolingo. Okay. <laughs> well played. Do they have a Duolingo class for speaking in tongues? Because I'd like to take that one. You're a programmer, aren't you? Yes. We can, <laughs> we can propose that to them. <laughs> Slava, keep running us through the list. Uh, okay, so uh, do you have an aversion to the sacred? Mm, Anytime you see a crucifix, no. do you like start spouting sexual blasphemies? Um, no. Okay. I mean, if I stub my toe, I'll yell out. You had to, but that's really you. You had to think about that for a second. <laughs> I well, if I stub my toe, I'll shout out or something. But uh, <laughs> that's just my de facto. <laughs> yeah, how I hurt myself. Yeah, right. So. so if you see a priest, when you go to mass, if you see a priest, if you start swearing at him uncontrollably, <laughs> you might be possessed. And then extraordinary extraordinary strength, like able to climb walls, throw men of Arnold Schwarzenegger's size across the room. No, I don't go to the gym at all. All right. So yeah, I guess you're not possessed, uh, which is good news for all of us. Nice. <laughs> but let's dive into some themes. So some of the themes we talked about, the human desire to confront evil. We saw that with Karis in his own way. With the mother firmly trying to confront whatever's going on with her daughter, Father Marin, the exorcist. Something I'm really interested in, hoping to spend more time than the other two with you, Zuber, is the conflict between faith and reason. I'm going to front load it for the audience and you. I don't think there is a conflict, but we'll, we'll get to that discussion here in a little bit. So the human desire to confront evil. Two questions came up. How do we define evil? And how do we recognize cleverly disguised evil? What say you, Zuber? I'd say evil would be that which defies God. And that that which defies not just God, but also God's intention. There's obvious evils. Like, God never intended for us to decide when it's that other person's time to return to God. And we're taking that into our own hands. But there's also attitudes and actions, which may seem trivial in many cases, but which also do defy God and his plan for us. And I think it's important to realize that like, it's, that it's not just actions, not just when someone's being very antisocial, but also very common everyday actions and attitudes that we hold within, which contradict the way we're supposed to be. That would be evil in a nutshell. I think that's a good... A good uh... A good definition. If you can explain it, and I think you did, to a five-year-old, you have done your job. 
I joked with you when we talked uh, before the recording, uh, Zuber, that I think I know more than you know your average Catholic, like about the Catholic faith now, because it, it sent me into some tangential topics. Uh, because when Father Ambrose, Father Lampert, the guy whose name I forget, that father, I listened to like three or four interviews and read some books and read a bunch of blog and more. What's above blog? <laughs> I don't want to say. Well, they weren't jur- They weren't journal articles, but they were articles for like Catholic platforms. Anyway, one of the things that at least two of the priests said that what the psychology behind the possession, the point for the demon specifically, is to make you hate God, rebel against God, and to slowly or fastly send you into despair. But mostly is to make you rebel against God. It's to repeat the first rebellion in, in the garden. The, and the possession is just a heightened way of doing that. I, I found that fascinating. And I've mentioned this on a couple of podcasts Something that the Catholics just knock out of the park and leave the Protestants behind is anthropology. Understanding evil, you have to understand man and his propensity towards it. So moving on, how do we recognize cleverly disguised evil? Because we know murder is bad. We know lying and profiting off of kidnapped people. We talked about slavery just a little bit ago and kidnapping. Like, but how do we how do we recognize something that's evil but it's cleverly disguised? What do you think, Zubair? I think the first place to look for cleverly disguised evil, you you may be able to recognize it. Taking a good look at yourself and recognizing how evil influences your own thoughts and your own actions, because something is common or not illegal doesn't mean it's not evil. We are all kind of prone to committing evil deeds holding attitudes that are very contrary to God's plan for us, a good faith journey will help you take that inward look at yourself to acknowledge it. You know, it's not easy to just get rid of it. And if you think that you have the power to get rid of it, you're, you're kidding yourself. But it is crucial to always acknowledge it and to recognize it within yourself. Like, you know, when I go to confession, that's the time... I've, I've overheard priests complain... That like a lot of times during confession, people will really just be talking about other people's sins with very little self-awareness. So uh, I'm overhearing that has always been like a reminder for myself. It's like, okay, this is not any time for me to think about what other people have done. This is for my, my time to admit what I've done wrong. And recognizing cleverly disguised evil becomes much easier when you recognize the cleverly disguised evil within your own heart. I think that's a really profound answer, Zubair, but it does stand on the presupposition that man is created uh, corrupt and evil, and in Christianity we would say that uh, all men are born into sin. So how do we tell someone who is not of the faith, and I don't want to necessarily go down too big of a rabbit hole theologically because this is a, this is a podcast about stories and books but like how do we have this conversation of recognizing cleverly disguised evil for those who have no faith uh, whether they're atheists or non-christian or what have you and maybe not having faith is the wrong way to say that but I'm you know what I mean well in many cases there's the denial of the existence of evil 
And then that that becomes very, very tricky. I mean, in the end, if you don't want to believe something that's true, there's nothing we can do to force them to believe it. They have to go through their own experiences, live their own life. Hopefully, by the grace of God, they will recognize that there, there actually is evil. The good news with that is that if there's an evil, something contradicting the good, then obviously there's also the good. I just want to interject real quick. That's a really... Slava, we should have Zubair on more often because he's much more profound than we are. Can you say that again? If if you don't want to believe something that's true, you can't be forced to? Say that again. One of the big problems there is that there's widespread denial in the existence of evil. And you can't force someone to believe in something. And so that's, that's what makes your question, you know, very tricky to answer because I, I don't think there is there is no obvious answer. Because we can't force someone to believe right. in evil. Right, yeah. And they have to have their own experiences, go through the journey of their own life to hopefully pick it up. And it would be by the grace of God. Sometimes we act as conduits mm-hmm. of that grace, but it's by the grace of God that they recognize that there is such a thing as evil. And that's the bad part. The good part is if there is the contradiction of good, that also means there's the goodness that it contradicts. They both mm, exist mm-hmm. and are both realities. Where, so this is interesting too, and I, I just want to pose this question for the audience because it's something that crossed my mind, and, and maybe they didn't think of this, but I think that they might have, is where do we see the recognition in the denial that evil exists? Where, where is that? How do we know that people are denying evil? It's an interesting statement, and I believe that it's true, but where do we see that? And Slava, jump in here. We see that every day in our culture. Talk to Philosophy 101 student in some undergrad, you know, state college or even <laughs> in the community college. They'll tell you, you know, there's no such thing as evil. It is a social construct. And what's evil to you does not necessarily mean evil to me. And I've heard this said about the Holocaust and this guy. What? Yeah, the specific guy was talking. Holy shit. This specific person said, yeah, I think the Holocaust is bad, but that's because of my culture. The Germans didn't think, or the Nazis didn't think the Holocaust was bad, and that's why they did it. And that proves to us that there's no such thing as evil, and it's all relative. And this is the this is the mantra of our age. So a materialist, strict materialist, atheist, somebody who would go as far as to say, yes, all religions are kooky, be consistent with his worldview, would say, even if he didn't say it outright, functionally, he would be a person who didn't believe in evil. And so they're all around us, to answer your uh, question. That's the rebellion of man against God, is to deny what God has revealed. Has God said? Did God really say? Uh, Depending on your translation, right? It was the first sin recorded, and there was multiple of sins, right? If you're going to go into a theological excursion on the Garden of Eden and the fall of man, there's there's the sin of pride, there's the sin of denial of God's sovereignty, there's the sin of the denial of God's... Um, super, help me out, what's the theological word for his sufficiency? Is it sufficiency, or is there a, a different word for it? That's good, yeah, sufficiency works. Or the, the perspicuity of his revelation? I mean, you, you can just look around at uh, common advertisements and then see, like, okay, how often is, is the appeal just me, 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 me? And, uh, you know, it's like, it, it's... What Slav is talking about has actually permeated our culture for decades. It was considered a right in every state by the Supreme Court ruling that uh, abortion 
Every state has to have an abortion clinic. I'm Catholic, so obviously you know where I side on that issue. It's autonomy, but not in the sense that it's good, free will that God gave us. It's a dethroning of God. And with the dethroning of God is the dethroning of reality. So you dethrone God and you elevate yourself to his level. And you really can't. In this reality that we're in, it's just an exercise in futility. But by exercising these things, you are rebelling against God and and his reality that he has spoken into existence. Quick side quest. I think when people say, well, religious people or Christians are silly because they think there's a big grandpa in the sky making sure the planet don't fall out of the sky. That's gravity. We've discovered gravity. Well, no shit, Sherlock. We know it's gravity. We know physics works. We know math works. Nobody's denying that. No thinking Christian is denying that. And I'm sure there's plenty of inarticulate Christians who have said the stupidest things to make the rest of us look like complete nincompoops. But nobody's denying that. that we're, what we're assenting to is, by God's power, physics and math and logic and gravity hold things together. And we know that tomorrow's reality will be the same as today. Zuber won't be purple tomorrow. Jonathan won't be a woman. I won't turn into a newt. And gravity will still exist. But people are walking contradictions, even us. But take God out of the equation, by what standard becomes the most important question? The opening of the Nicene Creed, what we usually say every week during the Catholic Mass, is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I think to deny that there's there's realities beyond what our eyes can see is a very unreasonable stand to take. There's there's far more going on. And like, you know, every good story in literature will point out with a character's conflict, there's far more going on than what that character can see. To actually deny, if you want to deny a specific faith, okay, but to deny the need for faith when we're talking about that there is something beyond what we can see, it all of a sudden becomes very unreasonable. I think is a perfect way to segue into conflict between faith and reason, which I said earlier is non-existent because my definition of faith is not just hoping in something that makes me feel good or hoping in ideals or some sort of perfunctory uh, dogmas created by people who are trying to just make nice for the rest of us in the camp. It's an ascent to a reality or it's an ascent to a revealed truth, verifiably. You know, even if I can't point to it and said, uh, there's God over there, like there are philosophical, sociological, all theological arguments that point to a reality. If, if we're consistent in discussing this, you can't separate faith and reason because you have to be reasonable to have faith. Jonathan, what are your thoughts on it? I think that in the West, we we have a very Greek style thinking, which is different from the rest of the world. It's slowly becoming more widespread, but I think that the question of faith and reason and the conflict therein, mostly in the West because that's my experience, is ever-present where it's like, well, you can't have science and religion. You can't have science and faith or or faith and reason. And it's similar to, to your point. There's no separation there for someone who believes in an existence in an all-powerful divine being namely God, who created something from nothing. We know in science that energy is neither created nor destroyed. It simply transfers. 
this idea of entropy that we have spoken about previously in different areas, but what if there was a being that was able to create that energy to start with, right? Like, I think the greatest argument for the existence of God, not that that was the question, but is first cause. Before there was something, there was nothing. That's kind of irrefutable, even if you believe in the Big Bang. It's like, well, what caused the Big Bang? You know, not that we need to get into that. But I think that as we grow and mature as people, we have to wrestle with difficult questions of like, well, how does faith and reason work together? And one of the ways that I've heard it put well is prior to the discovery of gravity, gravity existed. Prior to the laws of aerodynamics, aerodynamics existed. It wasn't until the, not Orson Welles, who are the guys, who are the guys who invited flying? Wright brothers. Yeah, the Wright brothers. Thank you. So they found a way to tap into this higher law. The law was there the whole time. And I'm not going to be able to spout off the laws of aerodynamics for you because I'm not that smart. But like they existed prior to the Wright brothers. It's just the way it is. Like birds have have been using those laws regardless of whether or not we believed in them or even thought to acknowledge them in, let's say, back, you know, to attempt to make this full circles, like at the Battle of Lepanto, the laws of thermodynamics existed. Sorry, not thermodynamics, aerodynamics. Birds were flying back then. Those laws exist. So there are there's something about our universe that's still yet to be discovered. And those of us who hold to a faith, for a moment stepping outside of Christianity, like any faith, is that we believe that a spirit realm exists. There's something that exists out there that we have minimal experience with and yet deep, intimate inter- interaction with all the time. We have to wrestle with, like, well, where's faith and reason? And, and to your point, because I'm kind of all over the place right now, is I, and, and we're all of a similar faith here, so it's kind of par for the course, but they work together. It is both faith and reason my entire worldview is built on. I believe in a God. I believe that also science exists. I believe that they work together and that there's a spirit realm. I believe that, you know, demons roam around just like Satan does, looking for whom they can devour. But I I also believe in a God who's good and kind and merciful. And intention, I believe in evil. Evil exists. And so it's these things that people feel like there are conflicts with that we have the ability to sit down and engage with in conversation. I don't think that really does a, a great job to answer your question because I think your question is a lot bigger than I have time to unpack here without building a philosophical argument from the baseline because there's this book that I read in years ago partly for college called Warranted Belief by I can't remember his name but basically there you have to define what is reason what is faith what is you know warranted or valid faith and reason and things like that. I think it's yeah. a good question to wrestle with. I think so, too. And I think when anybody, whether it's Christian or unbeliever or anybody of any faith, what we have to avoid is making claims without evidence or endorsing a hypothesis based on assumptions and prejudices rather than you know, empirical evidence or credentials or even something that's you know maybe not, not empirical, like the laws of logic, for example. How do we know mm, that they exist? Mm-hmm. We can't see them. Like, they're immaterial. There's certain things that are immaterial— and then the materialist will deny the existence of an immaterial world while using immaterial things. One of the things I often look to with this topic is specifically about miracles. And like I mentioned earlier, there is a huge investigation for any alleged miracle in the Catholic Church. It is difficult to actually get in a miracle that is approved, meaning like fully affirmed that this 
unexplainable phenomenon happened. But when they do, um, there's, there's often the case where it's like, okay, the standard of reason that the materialist may put forward cannot explain this phenomenon, this event. One of my favorites is um, the tilma of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So there was an image that miraculously appeared before St. Juan Diego in the area that's now Mexico City back in the 1530s. Uh, This is on a material, like a cactus-based material, that was supposed to have dissolved within the decade. You can still see the tilma to this very day. And it's, there's no scientific explanation for it. Or when you have a, a Eucharistic miracle, um, like blood on the, uh, on the host, it's always the same blood type, AB. Those who are given a blood sample, scientists, uh, doctors who are given the blood sample, not told where it comes from, will say the same thing. It's AB blood, and uh, this person has been under a lot of stress. And we know what event would have caused a lot of stress. Yeah, and I and I've heard that the, the, those same doctors will say that it is a person of Middle Eastern descent. Yes, but then all of a sudden, within like the strictly materialist definition of reason, you don't have an explanation. And you know, these are it's very easy to look up information about these things. It's I, I work for the National Catholic Register. I'm part of the effort to make it incredibly easy to learn about such phenomenon. You guys went over this theme over and over again with Chris's own journey. What happens when you encounter this does not fit into your worldview? And the answer is, in her case, and I think it's very common, you you just go on. Just pretend it doesn't exist. Sweep it under the rug. Forget about it. But there comes a time when that strict definition of reason is no longer adequate, and then faith is what you need to actually complete reason. I agree with you. I would, uh, I would put an asterisk to that. Only in this sense that that faith, often not oftentimes, all the time, that faith uh, given to you by the grace of God is an assent to an existing reality. It's not like belief. Yes, it's a belief in the hope we have in things yet not seen, but that's because of all the other evidence that we have, concrete evidence that we have for the other things that God has done and his existence that we can now hope in a resurrection or a second coming. We have these hopes and things unseen. That's part of the faith. But faith itself, and for our our context here in this podcast, this episode, is it's an ascent to realities that are verifiable. It's not just, oh, I have faith and it makes me feel better. That's not Christianity. That's uh, folk religion. That's folk Christianity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Might as well, you know, read a horoscope and rub a crystal on your face. Oh, my gosh. When engaging in philosophical method, whether it's to discuss religion, the existence of God, the morality of any social topic of today, whatever it is, when engaging in a philosophical method, I think it's important, nay, imperative, to begin with the facts of experience. So here's what I know as a person. Here's the other things that are outside the scope of my immediate knowledge, but I have access to them. Uh, and I at least have some sort of certitude that they're reliable. And then things that I don't know, go and explore other viewpoints and then organize these things into a non-contradictory layout. And then you start to analyze this data before you. What I know to be true, what I think is out there, well, experts who have told me stuff that I can verify they're not, they're not frauds and things that contradict my worldview. I don't think people do that. I know we don't do that as Christians often. 
Like we, we even us three have failed to do this. No, thinking is very difficult. To agree, to agree with you, sorry, no is not a great interjection, but no, you're right. Thinking is difficult, and we don't do it often enough. People have been writing about this for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Not just this specific question about faith and reason, but like toying back and forth between the stuff that you're talking about, Slava. But as we as we wind down here, I want to throw it at Zubair and say, Zubair, I know that you've, you've shared a lot of great pieces here, but do you have any questions that we didn't address, be that about previous episodes or this topic or what have you, to... Uh, to Slava and I as we as we wind down. Yeah, actually, uh, Slava specifically. Oh, all right. So I'm chopped liver. Nice, cool. No, please go for it. Hey, Jonathan, can you mute your mic, please? Well, okay. <laughs> this can be. This is for both of no, you. No, no, but, no. But... I'm just hassling you. I'm just hassling you. No, t- Slava, but it specifically is. because Slava's like yeah. uh, he's immersed himself with the subject a whole lot in the, this last week. Slava, I would like to. So you immersed yourself in the subject of exorcism quite a lot. In the last week, as we as you'd establish in uh, episode one, it's uh, not exactly water cooler conversation. I guess uh, since you can't really talk about it, you could, but it's kind of awkward to talk about it at work. But uh, you can talk about it pretty easily. We can be your water cooler. I'd like to actually know some of your impressions. So what I've my my impressions, what I've learned, I learned that the Catholic Church takes this stuff very seriously. Not that I came into it thinking it wouldn't, but the amount of effort to, that goes in to determine whether a person is truly suffering from a possession instead of a, you know oppression or obsession or if there's an infestation in the house, but a true possession, the amount of effort it takes to determine if it's a real thing with uh, the primary thrust of those efforts being the care of the victim or the alleged victim was fascinating because there was a lot more to it than I ever imagined. And listening to all the priests, all of them saying that none of them sought this out. It was always something thrust upon them, whether they had a person who was possessed in their care, uh, in their ministry, or a bishop said, hey, you're up, you're going. That was one thing that stood out. Or after that, and I don't know why it surprised me, it shouldn't have, because uh, I'm not like a rabid anti-Catholic, uh, but it's what stood out to me is how often these priests would reference as Christ as the one who does all the work, and they are just emissaries. They're, they are, you know, um, second secondary causes of anything that happens. And then the third, if I'm going to give you three things, the third thing is how rare possessions of the level that is portrayed in The Exorcist, how rare they truly are. Now, again, I didn't think there were like 30% of all exorcisms. I'm skeptical when it comes to stories about the supernatural because I know it's either people don't know what they're talking about or and I'm pretty aware there's a lot of fraud out there too. So I didn't think it was like, okay, this has to be, you know, 30% of exorcism is just like Reagan in the movie, but I never thought it'd be like 1% or 2, maybe 11, maybe 9. So those three things really stood out to me. Have you noticed that any friends or coworkers like approach you differently once they learn that you're open to believing in the reality of possession? I'll give one example for myself. Uh, I bartend part-time, and one of our regulars, uh, you know, we were just talking about politics stuff, and he said, 
He wanted to say something, but he was reluctant to tell it to me. He ended up saying it. He had enough drinks in him where he's willing to say it, even though it's like it's clear he's worried that I'm going to think he's stupid. But he says, like, you know, the devil has quite a lot of influence. And the thing is, it's like, okay, it's pretty clear that I'm like a, a, a Catholic. That's no secret by any means. For him, there's skepticism of whether that faith went as far as being open to believing in that. And the answer is yes, very much so. Like, I wouldn't, I don't think that's stupid at all. But he was clearly concerned that I would think he was stupid. That stood out right away. His reluctance had had to take a few drinks for him to to say even that much and turn red in the face. I haven't noticed anything like that in my in my life. I've had some friends that I've dropped off. When I became Christian, they dropped off, you know, really quickly, which was for the best because our lifestyle wasn't... Um, wasn't conducive to anything productive, forget uh, religious or, you know, holy. What I've noticed in my life consistently was people come to me almost like a confessional booth, right? Almost as to a priest. I've met many a people, strangers and acquaintances and sometimes friends, but mostly strangers and acquaintances, who open up to me about spiritual stuff, sin issues, or they would they perceive might be sin issues, sometimes it is, and even spiritual, supernatural questions, I found myself being a magnet for people like that. And it's not like every day or anything consistent, but it, it's, it's definitely, you know, a, a blimp on the screen where I notice it. Sometimes it's out of this world, no pun intended. And sometimes if you're a seminarian and you've studied this and you believe in this, well, what about this thing? I've experienced that. Interesting stuff, gentlemen. Interesting stuff. We are at time pretty much here. So, Zuber, I want to thank you for joining us today, and we would love to have you on again. Thanks for having me. It's good to, good to catch up with you guys and talk all about uh, exorcisms. Yes, a classic Saturday afternoon conversation. Before we go, be sure to hit that subscribe button and make sure that you're following us for all of the side quests that come up from exorcisms to stormlight archives to ecologists forming planets, whatever the case may be. Be sure to be here for the roadside killer clowns roadside picnic. Yeah, killer clowns too. That is our side quest. And we expect and hope that Zubair will join us again for another side quest sometime in the near future. I hope to be back on soon. And when you say killer clowns, do you mean the Joker or it? It. <laughs> okay, that's what I figured. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, a profound thought just came into my head. We are planning on reading it. And since that was one of the things that came to you, maybe the three of us can reread it. Well, Jonathan will be first time. Yeah, I've never read it. I've actually never read that a, one before. Uh, okay. Well, for me, it as a, just like The Exorcist for a different reason. It stuck with me because I read it as a kid. I loved Stephen King as a kid. I still like Stephen King. And it was, um, yeah, it was one of those books that just stuck with me. So I'll reread it once or twice every couple of years. Well, you know, I'll, I'll reread it. And uh, yeah, so maybe that, that can be a way Zuber can come back. We'll read it. Love it. Because it also talks about evil. And it's a very spiritual book. That's the great thing really? about horror. And I think why there's actually much appeal for it is that like there is the acknowledgement that there is evil and even a person who strictly doesn't believe in evil or or so they claim I, like that that genre still has a um 
an appeal for many of them for probably reasons they don't quite understand. I'm digressing. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. No, that's good, though. I'm glad that we've got something on the schedule to get uh, Zubair back on here. That'll be fun. Anyway, folks, thank you for joining us here on SideQuest. Be sure to subscribe, share, and like. It helps more people see our podcast and helps us grow, and we appreciate it. Anyway, for right now, be sure to tune in next time, adventurers, on the next episode of SideQuest.